0: I'm Father Mitch Paquon. Welcome to EWTN Live where we bring you guests from around the world. A lot of you are well aware that we have a declining belief among Catholics in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Our guests tonight are helping people get onto the same page regarding understanding and faith that the Holy Eucharist is not just a symbol, but truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ our Lord. And they're doing it by using evidence from sacred scripture, the church fathers, and scientific evidence from three Eucharistic miracles, one of which happened just 26 years ago. They put all this together in a new book called Behold It Is I. Scripture, Tradition, and Science on the Real Presence. Here to tell us more about it, please welcome Dr. Stacy Trasankos and Father George Elliott. Doctor, how are you? Good to see you. Father oh, Elliott, good to see you.
1: Thanks for having welcome.
0: us. Welcome, welcome to Alabama. Thank you. Um, both of you are from the Republic of Texas. Yes, that's right. Is that not right? Yes, I'm yes. glad you got the title right there. Yes, well. i <laughs> that's good. Yes. Hey, mm-hmm. I live there now. That's right. <laughs> so, and uh, you're from the Diocese of Tyler, but you work in Nacogdoches, Texas. Nacogdoches, Texas. A lot of folks don't know that town. But it's it's a nice little town. Yeah. It, it is, is it's beautiful, beautiful, yeah. And you live
2: in Hideaway, Texas.
0: Hideaway, Texas. Yes. Wait a minute. Whose hideaway is it? No. Yeah. <laughs> we assume there are lots it's of hideaways. It's a great family place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as long as nobody finds yeah. you. So <laughs> well this is great. Uh you know, I enjoyed your book very uh, very well. Thank you. Um you Uh, do cover, you know, these key elements and um, tell us a little bit about why you started to write this book and why you wrote it together. What what do you contribute?
3: Yeah, so it it kind of started with, I had a year or so where I had so many people come to me. Some of them were Catholics, some of them were non-Catholics, but all of them wanted to learn more about why Catholics believe in the real presence of Christ. Right. And so I had this conversation and I mean there's there's such a complex or I don't know if complex but you know there's so much evidence out there yes. that these were these you know m- multiple meeting hours long conversations and I thought to myself after the third or fourth you know <laughs> I could save myself a lot of time if I would just find a book that had a- all of this information compact together from the scriptures, from tradition, and from uh, Eucharistic miracles. And I went out there and I, I searched and I could find books that did one of each of those, but yeah. uh, not all of them together. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, really, it really struck me that also, you know, it was some of my own parishioners that were coming and asking me these questions. And I thought to myself, you know, why is it that Catholics don't know this? You know, it's, it's not so much material that you know, a really faithful Catholic can't sit down and basically just memorize mm-hmm. these, these different arguments and texts. I mean, right. when you read the book, it's actually, it's it's fairly simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find in, in the, the first two sections, uh, the ones that I wrote, really the, the information is not complex. And so I thought, you know what? Let's get a, a very accessible book out there that covers the three of those. And right at about that time, uh, Dr. Trusankos had been giving some talks on Eucharistic miracles. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm really not qualified to write the Eucharistic miracle section. I can repeat what everybody else has been saying, but I can't really bring any sort of expertise. And so uh, I contacted Dr. Trisenkos, and I'll pass the story off to you then. Yeah. First of all, tell us what your doctorate is in
2: chemistry. Chemistry. Yeah, and I wasn't religious then, so I came in. This is from
0: uh, pen, correct? Yeah, so this is, you know. a very serious degree mm-hmm. uh, that you know and uh, we like to call hard science yeah. so um, what got you into doing this
2: well I was working for Bishop Strickland at the time our bishop and he asked me to give some talks on Eucharistic miracles and I, I first told him no because I wanted, I didn't want to just repeat the stories. I wanted to see the data for myself so uh-huh. I could know what uh-huh. I was saying. And, and then, I, and then you know, I, I realized like, you shouldn't tell your Bishop, no, you should go do it. And so I, I was giving the talks about the time he asked me um, to, to do that. And but right before that I had been praying to see the data and the man who led the investigation for the Buenos Aires miracles in Argentina came up to Bishop outside a small chapel in Sydney, Australia on the other side of the world and handed him the data and Bishop Strickland sent it to me and it landed on my desk. So <laughs> then I had to, to do the book.
0: There might be a few things I'm going to ask you to pray for this. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you get that this is like of landed on my
2: desk. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah so,
2: um, so I got to look at the data.
0: All right. Well, let's take a look at mm-hmm. these areas. You know, you, in your book, you talk about the role of sacred scripture, what sacred scripture says about the true presence, and some of the fathers of the church. You go through some key, you don't cover all the fathers, uh, that's enormous, Mm -hmm. but you cover some key elements from the earliest years. So let's start off with scripture.
3: Yeah, so, you know, I think the first principle in, in the scripture section is actually that we as Catholics, when we speak to someone who perhaps is struggling with faith in the real presence, we go immediately to John chapter six or to the institution narratives. And obviously those are a key part of the argument, but Mm -hmm. really I think most people balk at the idea of what the Catholic church teaches about the Eucharist because they don't see it uh, foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, to a degree I would... I would agree with them that, you know, wow, something as monumental as Jesus Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity under the form of bread and wine, it's not even almost foreshadowed in the Old Testament. I mean, if, if that's the truth, that's a big statement to make. Yes. And so, what we do in that first chapter is and, we. And
0: just so we understand, so our audience understands, it's very important to see that we look at the whole of Scripture. Mm. AND THAT, YOU KNOW, FOR US, THE OLD TESTAMENT IS NOT SOMETHING, OKAY, WE GOT OVER THAT, LET'S GET TO THE, NO, THIS IS INTEGRAL, IT'S LOOKING TOWARD THE NEW TESTAMENT, THE NEW TESTAMENT IS COMING FROM THE OLD, SO
3: IT'S A VERY IMPORTANT THING TO HAVE THESE TOGETHER. Exactly, yeah. I, I kind of like the image of a, of a telescope. You know, it, you need all of the different lenses to line up and you have to, you have to look through them together to really get the, the image that you want. And that's how it is. You have to look through the Old Testament to, to be able to properly see the New Testament and the revelation that Jesus Christ provides. And so, you know, making sure that we really look at the Old Testament is so important. Um, yeah, and, and, and so, we, you know, it starts really from the very beginning in the garden and the, the tree of life. Um, and so, you know, we, we examine that image and, and specifically what's important about that is that, you know, the, the tree of life, it was eating the fruit that was so important. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, we go and we look at, uh, Melchizedek is obviously very important. You can see Melchizedek reappear in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, and look at specifically the offering that he made in his priesthood and how important that is, and then we go, uh, also into Passover, which is you know, obviously an extremely important uh, aspect and prefigurement of the Eucharist, um, and then the manna in the desert. And look at each of those, and, and specifically with, like I said, the, the tree of life, the Passover lamb, and the manna in the desert, you have to eat all of the three of those to receive the salvation that God was offering in and through them. Right. And so it seems strange that you would have this kind of continuous narrative of eat, eat, eat. And then the fulfillment of all of this, all of a sudden you have nothing to eat. You just have to say, I believe in Jesus. It seems like that's not God's modus operandi.
0: No, 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 he's definitely prepared. And and you bring that out. And you, uh, one of the things that you bring out very well is uh, for instance, in the Passover, you make the connection with it being a memorial, mm-hmm. a memorial sacrifice. That's one class of sacrifices in the Old Testament. It's not just, uh, yeah, let's remember what Jesus did. No, no, no. This is a classification of sacrifice. And exactly. you bring that out. Um, and, you know, this also in that Exodus 12... Uh, he, Moses says to do the
3: sacrifice in exactly. Hebrew, asa. Mm-hmm. You know, atazikaron. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's recalled then by Christ and do this in remembrance of Christ. Right, right. So right. now have the mass. So so that's now. Did,
0: doctor, did, did you have any part of this section of writing on scripture? No,
2: this was all Father George. Mm-hmm. Um, putting together the okay. things that you've been talking to your preachers okay. about.
0: Okay, yeah. um, well then let's just, be, so you got the Old Testament mm-hmm. prefigurements, mm-hmm. and then in the New Testament, what, what was the key there for real presence?
3: Yeah, so, you know, when you look at all of those uh, prefigurements, and then you line up, like you were talking about, you know, the words that Jesus Christ used at the institution narratives, it becomes more and more difficult to to understand this as anything other than a sacrifice. Yes. But of course, you know, the sacrifice is is really kind of two part, right? There's always the the killing of the actual animal and then there's the eating of the flesh or the consuming of the mm-hmm. flesh and you know, mm-hmm. different people consume it so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so also you know, why is it that now in the fulfillment of all sacrifices, you only have the the mm-hmm. killing of the victim, right? The slaughtering of the victim, but no eating. What, what's going on there? Once again, it just, it, it seems to, to ring hollow to think that there is not a meal attached to this sacrifice of right. Christ. Uh, and then, you know, moving on to John chapter six, that's the next big thing where, you know, Christ makes it exceedingly clear. I, I actually can't think of a more clear way for Jesus to say it mm-hmm. than, you know. <laughs> amen amen I say to you my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink you know if you wanted to make it more clear how, how would you say it yeah you know, that, I think that's a that's a really poignant question to ask mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to say it more clearly um, yeah and so, so so you got that Sense of the real
0: presence, mm-hmm. you know that this is truly His body and blood. You take time going through the narratives that the, the where, where, the gospel writers and Saint Paul mm-hmm. lay out what Christ did at the Last Supper, and the ongoing celebration of the Eucharist right. by the apostles. Saint Paul offered Mass and. The other apostles did as well.
3: Exactly. Yeah. The you know there's Acts two forty two where it talks about they they committed themselves to, um, to the prayers, the common life, the apostles' teaching, and the breaking of bread. Which mm-hmm. of course that term the breaking of the bread was a was kind of a, a euphemism for the offering of the mass, right? right. For the, the celebration right. of the Lord's supper. Um, and <laughs> I, I like to really ask people, well, what could that mean? What did, they, what did they dedicate themselves to in the early church if it wasn't this celebration of the Lord's Supper? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. The breaking of the bread, was it a normal meal? The, the early Christians, they, they grew very quickly, but it was in, in number, not, not in size, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it was, uh, and so it doesn't make sense that it would, it would be anything except for this, this specific ritual meal which Jesus mm-hmm. Christ established and which the early church understood as one of the four most important things to focus on.
0: Yeah, it this uh is very important for your next section in your book because you have three parts to the book. Right. That the reason you bring in the fathers of the church is that they learned from the apostles. You're talking about the early fathers like St. Ignatius mm-hmm. of Antioch. Yeah. And Justin, Saint, and Justin Martyr, yeah. who has a good section on the Eucharist, and Saint Irenaeus, exactly, and later on Saint uh, Cyril of Jerusalem. So these, you know, carry on. And what did you discover
3: in their teaching
0: on the Eucharist?
3: Yeah, to say it very simply, I mean, there is a clear continuity mm-hmm. from the scriptures from, from John's gospel, from the writings of Paul, right into the life of the early church. Mm-hmm. You know, Saint Ignatius makes very clear and strong statements, you know, the bread that is the flesh of Christ and the, um, and the cup that is his uh, blood. Um, and of course, you know, Saint Ignatius I think is, is a very powerful witness because he actually studied under John the apostle. And, and
0: there are some citations of John. You know, it's not word for word. It's, uh, you know, him from memory. Right. Say, but he includes some of John's gospel in his letters.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's clear. It's, it's the kind of quoting that a student after many years still uh, makes of his original teacher. Right. You know? Um, I, I think that I, I do a similar thing with some of my favorite professors in the seminary where mm-hmm. just certain concepts, I, I repeat those again and again. Sure, I've developed them, but they're their concepts. And that's yeah. what, what Ignatius was doing with, with St. John. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, for Ignatius to have such a clear understanding that that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ in a very real way, and he even parallels it in, a, in an attack against... Um, the, the, the docetists uh, who claim that, that Jesus didn't have a real body and a real blood and he actually uses the Eucharist as this argument saying like, look, you can't believe in the Eucharist and say that Jesus didn't have real flesh and real blood. Uh, it, it, it must be that Jesus had real flesh and real blood because the Eucharist is real flesh and real blood.
0: Yeah, they were taking a pagan view that the gods in the pagan stories would look like humans, mm. but they really wouldn't take on. They wouldn't really become human. They'd have a human shape for a while, and they thought like pagans still. Mm-hmm. And you know, Saint Ignatius said, "No, you know, this was real, and the Eucharist really is the same body, blood, soul, and divinity." Exactly.
3: Yeah, and so. I have a hard time believing, you know, even if the Holy Spirit weren't involved in preserving the teaching of the apostles. I have a hard time believing that someone like St. Ignatius could warp John's teachings that much in one generation, such that, you know, John didn't intend John chapter 6 to be about the Eucharist, and yet now St. Ignatius is running around talking about the Eucharist as if it really is Jesus' true flesh and true blood. And I think it's worth
0: for our Audience, to note, St. Ignatius wrote these letters on his way to being martyred. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not like he's uh, just sort of thinking big thoughts and trying to get a dissertation done. Right. (laughs) He's he's on his way to be martyred, Mm -hmm. and it's just ten years or so after John died. Exactly. It's in 107. That's close. Yeah. So you do this with the other fathers uh, as well, going through what they, you know, St. Justin Martyr.
3: Yes, yeah. I mean, sitting and going through St. Justin Martyr, it as you read it, you almost feel like you're sitting in Mass. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, yeah. it so closely parallels uh, the Mass of today. And I, in the book, there's a little chart that, that just parallels text yes, after text. Right. A very helpful uh, chart. Thank you. Yeah. And it's... Um, yeah, so I, I don't want to go too deep into it because there's some really interesting things in the last section of the book. Uh, but yeah, I mean, St. Justin Martyr lays out the Mass almost exact in parallel. And his teaching, once again, is exceedingly clear that this is, you know, flesh and blood, just as Christ had flesh and blood. And the other point you bring out is it's only for
0: those who have been baptized. That's right and who share our faith mm-hmm. if you don't have our faith and you don't uh, and you
3: aren't baptized, mm-hmm. you can't receive the Eucharist yeah and even more than that he even adds in and and who are living according, yes. according to our teachings and so I think that's particularly poignant right now with the political scene uh, with politicians who who are being denied communion that no this is actually something that Saint Justin Martyr in you know, who died in 165, he taught this. He believed this. This is not something new. This is this is the teaching of the Church of the Ages. And he didn't make it up. That's right. It's only what he inherited.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. straight from Paul, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep, exactly. First Corinthians 11. Yeah. So the, these are very important things to show that continuity and that that Catholic faith... Wasn't some medieval invention like some people try to say? right? Yes. Nothing like that. It is in the New Testament. It is in the earliest fathers. Now, you, Doctor Crescencos, you forward. do, you do, you go way ahead mm-hmm. to some Eucharistic miracles. The oldest of which is at Lanciano, mm-hmm. which. That miracle happened when?
2: They believe it happened around 700 A.D. So we're getting back close to that time, if you want to call that close. And And then you
0: also deal with another one from Bolsena?
2: Yes, the miracle at Bolsena, which is... Credited by some as being the the reason for the Feast of Corpus Christi that right. Pope Urban IV mm-hmm. um, instituted the first universal feast in the church because of this miracle.
0: Right, right. Um, And then the third one is more contemporary.
2: Yeah, I wanted to pick different ones. Um, so one from 700, one from the Middle Ages, and then one from the 90s, mm-hmm. 1990s, uh, the one down at um, Buenos Aires. Cause, mm-hmm. And I had that. I had that data, and we were going to do more, um, but but when I started, I, you know, I got the Lanciano report. I mean, the uh, Linoli report on the Lanciano miracle that mm-hmm. um, Eduardo Linoli did in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. I got a copy of that. Um, I had the Buenos Aires <laughs> data, um, and then I, the only data there for the the Bolsena miracle is just historical accounts. So, right. I had I had my papers in front of me, and it, it took. My part of the book is almost half the book, so I only covered those three. But I wanted to do a deep dive into what constitutes data for a eucharistic miracle in the first place. Okay.
0: Well, start off with um, you know I know it. it, Well, what order would you like to start off doing these?
2: Um, Well, I I tend to get into the details, and I I won't get into the technical details too much. But Balsina was um, you learn things as you're starting to write. So I, I, um, I didn't want to just tell the stories, I wanted to look up different historical accounts and one of the first things I learned with that miracle even from a historian um, uh, Bernini in the Catholic Encyclopedia from 1909 was of the opinion when he wrote the Encyclopedia article for Orvieto which is where the miracle occurred mm-hmm he didn't think it actually happened. And the Mm -hmm. reason he didn't think there was strong historical evidence is because Pope Urban the fourth died the year after the miracle is said to have happened. Mm And in 1263 and he died 1264. And that's also the year he issued the papal bull that instituted the feast of Corpus Christi. So that's a lot to happen one year later. His two biographers that followed him around mentioned nothing of a miracle. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he never mentions a miracle.
0: And what was the so folks know what we're talking about? Yeah. What was the miracle that
2: the Balsina miracle is? Um, there's a traveling priest from Prague, uh, Saint Peter. I mean, um, Father Peter. He's traveling down um, from Prague down to Rome because he is doubting. He's a doubting. Priest, mm-hmm. and he's doubting the real presence himself. There, in the climate, the two decades before that, up in Belgium and northern Italy, there was a lot of heresy. There were a lot of people denying mm-hmm. the real presence of Christ. So, and, in response to that, there sprang up this Eucharistic movement, and um, so this priest is traveling down. He goes through um, Bolsena on his way to Rome. He stops to pray the mass by himself in the in Saint Christina Chapel, and. And, and, it, and that's when it happens, the the host turns into flesh and starts bleeding down his arm and the chalice turns to blood and it drips onto the corporal. And he sends out people to go on and finish the trip to Rome and tell the Pope. The Pope, according to the story is so excited. He brings emissaries out and meets this priest crossing the bridge and um, is so moved by it that he enshrines this, this miracle. Mm-hmm and um, is is so moved by it that he then institutes the Feast of Corpus Christi, has St. Thomas Aquinas write up the liturgy. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, when I learned that that was disputed, that's when I started thinking, um, so not everybody just agrees that this miracle happened. (laughs) And it, I mean, I hadn't heard anything like that before. I start the part of the book out saying, none of this means they couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. We absolutely could believe that God can do anything. Like for the sake of our salvation, He can work a miracle anytime. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything, like you could start levitating right now and, Mm -hmm. and moving around the room. Anything God wants to do, He can do it. So never doubting that Eucharistic miracles can occur, but trying to say what we do in science is we look at the evidence in front of us Mm -hmm. and often whether it's historical evidence so that's history but even if it's science and we're looking through the microscope or we're analyzing the blood type we're just dealing with what's in front of us and Mm -hmm. often we don't have the full story we don't know enough to say something conclusively Mm -hmm. Um, so i ended up saying after looking at those three miracles the data is inconclusive
0: yeah. Okay. So, th- and, and this is one of the things about Eucharistic miracles—they are not—and you make this clear in the book—they are not the basis right. for our faith in the real presence. That <laughs>
2: that, that, that's what
0: is. That—that's one of the points you make in the first part of the book yeah. that having faith in what and who Jesus Christ is and having faith that His Word is true, and it is worthy of belief, and that what you then do is take the conclusions from what our Lord says, and say, this is what He communicated. So, if I believe in Jesus, then I have to believe what He says, and this follows from it. Yes. These Eucharistic miracles, on the other hand, you know, we have to, and you do a lot of checking into great details, because uh, at Lanciano, uh, a host turned to flesh, and it's heart flesh. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's like a slice of a Cardiac. heart,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and the uh, precious blood turned into blood. Yeah. Uh, and this type AB, correct?
2: That's what the some of the results indicate, but right. I didn't um, I found conflicting um, interpretations of the data mm-hmm. when I started looking at it, and okay. that really drove home to me just how um, tenuous some of it is. Yeah. Um, the, and the re, and, and so the reason, like, it, like we struggled with this because when I told Father George what I was finding in the data, like I was not just going to repeat the stories. Um, we almost said maybe we should just do two separate books, um, but then we thought they should go together. And here's why: I a lot of the work I do in the, the theology and science field, I do a lot of talks on faith mm-hmm. and science. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that too many Catholics lead with Eucharistic miracles to convince people in our time to believe in the real presence of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we should be leading with Eucharistic miracles. I think we should be leading with scripture and tradition, mm-hmm. teaching people how to read the Bible typologically and in, in, centered on Christ. Um, this,
0: this is a, a key pastoral issue, you know, because uh, We have to take a look at the kind of witnesses, another point you bring out, who are these witnesses behind the New Testament? Apostles who write about their own struggles of faith, but then who lay down their lives and die as martyrs for that faith. And that's not what liars tend to do. Exactly. Liars tend to make themselves look really good and then I always was good. <laughs> uh, the, these, and, but they'll get out of trouble if they can. Mm-hmm. Not with the apostles. They point out their failures, their sins, and they lay down their life for this.
3: Yeah. yeah. And to, to bring up the, the pastoral issue as well, you know, when you think about all of our faith, all of Revelation, uh, and, and especially the sacraments and the Eucharist as that kind of source and summit, the, the purpose of all of this is the salvation of souls, right? Mm -hmm. And salvation happens in and through the life of grace, right? It's that participation in the life of God, which then at the end of our uh, lives on earth blossoms into eternal divine life. And the theological virtue of faith comes in and with the life of grace. And so, with this, the question that is really at the center of this is, what do we believe? What is really the source of our faith? Mm -hmm. Do we believe science first and foremost, and therefore believe God, or do we believe God first? Mm -hmm. Is this a theological faith, or is it a natural faith? Mm -hmm. And I think that question is really the question whether or not someone is on the path to salvation. And that's why I really felt very comfortable publishing the book with Boy. Dr. Shosankos that like, no, we almost in, a, in, in part need to show the weakness of science yes. to prove this. Nothing that she says in the book says, these miracles aren't real, right? In fact, I still believe that all three of them are. Um, and, and yeah, and I think I, I think I have good evidence for that. However. I don't believe it because science has proved it without a doubt. Because science itself is actually too weak to prove something of this magnitude. Yeah, it, it can't do it. Yeah, yeah. There's
0: there's the limit to um, the, the the kind of data it can acquire, especially with something that happened, you know, in 700 A.D. And here we are in 20, right. you know, right. 22nd well, second century.
2: Unpopular opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, in the Buenos Aires miracles, the chain of custody became an important part of the investigation once it started. Mm-hmm. Okay, but for three years before that, there, the, there was chain of custody because it was with the parish, but the chain of custody became real important once the investigation started. With the Lanciano miracle, this is the un, unpopular opinion, yeah. there's no chain of custody for 800 years.
0: Right, right. It's kind of unsure where what. And I'm what not happened.
2: saying I'm not saying you know like we like we talked about this. I'm not saying that that, that isn't a true miracle. But there is no chain, just speaking as a scientist, there was no chain of custody for 800 years till someone started writing about it. And then they authenticated it in the 1500s.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that's a problem. We have to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back in a couple more minutes. We want to get some of your questions and your comments, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Um, we are talking to Father George Eliot and uh, Dr. Stacy Trasankos uh, about the Eucharist and a couple different aspects of it. Um, if you want to find out more about Father George Elliott's apostolates and his work, you can go to Catholic Cast Media, Catholiccastmedia.com. Or you can also go to Catholic-link.org. Catholic-link.org and find out more. If you want to find out more about Dr. Trusankos' work, uh, you can go to stacytrasankos.com. And Trusankos is T-R-A-S-A-N-C-O-S. StacyTrasankos.com. All right, you ready for some questions? Sure. Let's start off with Bill. You're in Mississippi, Bill? Uh, Yes, Father, Uh, Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Great. I love that area. What can we do for you today? Well, uh, thanks for a great show. I'm really very interested in this, what what you're saying. Can't wait to get the book. Uh, My question is, I've been thinking about it, over the years, several years, I've uh, helped teaching in RCIA classes. And I guess I've been through at least three or four different outlines as to how to teach it. And I don't remember anything about Eucharistic miracles being in there anywhere in terms of teaching the the true presence. And I don't think I've ever heard it in all my life uh, uh, as part of a homily. And I just wondered, uh, I think you answered part of my question listening earlier, but I wonder if it's just, uh, um, I just wondered why. I just uh, uh, just never seen it under under those
1: circumstances.
0: Great question, Bill. Dr. Trusankos, what what do you think of that?
2: I can speculate as to why that is. Um, It may be that uh, for a homily, it just doesn't fit because there's too much of the technical details to get into about the Eucharistic miracles. Or Mm -hmm. maybe maybe there are priests that just are unwilling, like we were, just not repeat the stories. Mm -hmm. Um, For RCIA, I think... I would advise not to rely on that too much for RCIA. Mm -hmm. I think what you want to do with RCIA is teach people why we have faith. So with science, all we can have is knowledge about what's in front of us, what we can see and test with our eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, You want to teach them about faith. And... um, and also probably what gives priests some pause with homilies there are some stories about eucharistic miracles that have turned out to be not true to Mm -hmm. to be what one doctor called them frauds Mm -hmm. Um, like the the world health organization the WHO report um, Franco Serafini a doctor in in, uh, Europe traveled to where this report was kept the the world health organization report was a big deal in in the stories of the Lanciano miracle because It says that for 15 months, 500 scientists conducted experiments and were compelled to say, this is a real miracle. And so you want to find that, you want to read it and you want to know what it says. You can't find it on the internet. And um, this one doctor in Italy traveled to where this World Health Organization report was kept and he asked to see it. And what he found was the fraud. Um, When he took it out of the safe and looked at it, the front and back this is what he says in his book, the front and back were about the Linoli report and the Lanciano miracle, but everything in between was a report on an Egyptian mummy. So uh-huh. I think if I were, if I could get inside the mind of a priest just preaching in a homily, I wouldn't want to risk right. sharing a story that I wasn't sure Right. because right. that would damage someone's faith.
0: Right, right. And, you know, and there are... Uh, I think websites where you can find out more about the um, uh, Eucharistic miracles. The dedication of your book is to
2: Carlo Acutis,
3: Blessed Carlo. Blessed
0: Carlo mm-hmm. Acutis, who that's, right, that's what he, yeah. did? he did exactly.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and maybe. so yeah, you know, I really want to commend you on your your section because first of all, it was, I mean, it was bold to say what you said because so many people totally. do just repeat. Yeah. The, the stories, and I have to admit that I'm, I'm guilty as a priest of, you know, I went online and I did all sorts of research and I saw on all of these different, you know, Catholic websites that I trust for so much other good information, um, things like this World Health Organization report, and I've given homilies on, on the Eucharist and, you know, kind of wrap it up a little bit with the Eucharistic miracles, mm-hmm. um, and I've mentioned things like that, mm-hmm. and so uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's actually really important that people read this book because, and and, and specifically your section, it's mm-hmm. it's technical. I'm a, <laughs> it I have a degree me. in philosophy, and so <laughs> some of the things as I was reading, I was like, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm reading Greek again. You know? um, uh, but it's it's worth reading because we need to clean up our narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's what's what so important about. is mm-hmm. that we need to we need to say what we can say, and we need to not say what's not true because right. we. I mean, we're, we're apostles of the truth as Catholics, you know, that's, that's what we do. Um, And we need to make sure that what we say is true.
2: You'll hardly find anyone who loves science more than I do. I -hmm. mean, I was a chemist, chemistry was my search for God.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: It led me to follow the science, you'll find God. But that's why I wanna be so quick to say, keep, chemist- keep science within its limits. Mm-hmm. Like, Don't expect too much of science more than it can. That's how you truly respect the discipline. Science is the study of God's handiwork. It's the study of what's in front of us. Mm-hmm. It should not be the basis of our faith ever.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let me ask another question. Uh, we have little sound problems here in the studio, but somebody in our studio audience asked a question, especially for you, Father Elliot. Um, given what you're saying about our faith in the Eucharist, mm-hmm. you know, what is the impact of receiving the Eucharist in the hand or on the tongue? And similarly, uh, a lot related to that, because I had a question about this today on my radio show, Um, What about receiving under both species in this, uh, and that's been limited uh, considerably since COVID. So just those two issues.
3: Yeah, so to start with, uh, first off, two really good questions. And I think they're very important pastorally as well. Um, You know, in, in regard to receiving on the hand versus receiving on the tongue, so I personally, I, I grew up receiving on the hand. That's what I was always taught as a child. That's what I did throughout, um, you know, all the way up into my teenage years. And then it was, while I was really kind of in my my later teenage years, the argument was presented to me and I thought to myself, well, that makes a lot of sense. And that argument was that, you know, what we believe is that in in the, the, the smallest particle or crumb of of the host that can be seen by the the naked human eye, there is present the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And therefore, anytime a crumb falls to the ground, we're allowing God to fall to the ground. God who made himself so humble that not only did he become a human being, not only did he become a a little baby who couldn't even hold up his own head, but he became uh, humble even to take the form of, of a host, mm-hmm. to be moved around by by human beings and even to be able to be dropped. And so if God is going to humble himself in that way, then we need to even more show, so show all of the respect we can to our Lord. Uh, and, you know, kneeling before him, receiving on the tongue is, is a way that we can, first off, just reduce the amount of touching that happens and therefore the probability that that a particle falls to the ground, but also show that great respect. You know, the more our Lord humbles Himself, the more we, in our actions, should exalt Him. Um, and uh, you know, whenever I present that to people who 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 have real faith in the, in the Eucharist and and who aren't tied up in, in the politics of the whole thing, because obviously it's a very po- politically charged question, mm-hmm. um, they all just say, well, Father, that makes complete sense. And they they immediately start doing that. Uh, No questions asked. Um, And so, yeah, I I encourage people to do that. Now it is important to state that uh, the Catholic Church does permit uh, people to receive on the hands and it permits people to receive standing. And that is permitted. It is is not a sin to do those things. However, um, you know, When I get before God, I want to be able to tell him that at every moment of my life, I did everything I could to exalt him, especially in the great gift of the Eucharist. Uh, And so it just makes sense to me. And, And I think that has
0: to be the determinative issue. Are we giving greater honor and praise to God our Lord? Or are we trying to assert, well, I can feed myself, (laughs) <laughs> YOU KNOW, THAT MOVES US A LITTLE BIT CLOSER TOWARDS PRIDE. RIGHT. AND WE HAVE TO BE CAREFUL. And you know, CERTAINLY IN THE MARONITE RITE, um, we, we, WE ARE PERMITTED IF SOMEONE HAS VARIOUS REASONS TO FEAR uh, COVID AND THAT mm-hmm. KIND OF CONTACT, WE CAN GIVE IT TO THEM IN THEIR HAND. BUT THAT'S, I'D SAY IN OUR PARISH, MAYBE ONE, TWO PERCENT, yeah. IF THAT. Uh, but we, our normal ways to to do in, intinction, we place the body of Christ into the precious blood, and the priest place or deacon places it on the tongue. Yeah. And so this is a, a way of showing that respect as well as receiving both. But about the, uh, but about receiving the body and blood, what?
3: Yeah. You, so it's it's interesting that you bring up intinction because I think it's actually a, it's a very good solution for all of the problems that are, that are being asked. Uh, yes. So, like you said, intinction is, is dipping the host into the precious blood, and then obviously you can't receive on the hand uh, if the right. precious blood is on the host, and so you, right. so you receive on the tongue, um, and that allows... And,
0: and also, if you do intinction, you may not do the intinction yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's also a, a health issue, that if you miscalculate where the precious blood is and you could be putting your own fingers into it. That's a health issue as mm-hmm. well as an issue of uh, honoring the Eucharist. So it has to be the priest or deacon
3: who does the intention. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, the receiving under both kinds, both the, mm-hmm. you know, under the, the form of bread and the form of wine, um, obviously if you receive under only one kind you receive the full body blood soul and divinity of Jesus Christ but there is a a, a quality of the expression mm-hmm. that is increased mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. Uh, the by receiving under both kinds and so that's a really good and beautiful thing to do if and when it is uh, appropriate and available um, i personally as a priest it it breaks my heart i mean it, it tears me up to to think about the times when some mistake was made and somebody trips holding the precious blood or even you know there's a in the in the handoff between the person receiving and the minister there wasn't a perfect pass off and some of the precious blood falls to the ground mm-hmm. that you know that's the kind of thing that that keeps a priest up at night and it's something that should keep all of us up at night mm. that you know, by a decision that I did, or by, by a mistake that, that that was made on on my watch, our Lord was not respected, yeah. um, and so, you know, we need to be very careful about when and how communion in a chalice is mm-hmm. is used, because it is just that much easier for, uh, you know, perhaps an inadvertent but still a, a desecration of the Eucharist to happen. Yeah, and yeah. you know. Uh,
0: in that light, it's
3: worthwhile
0: remembering um, some of the people who were martyred trying to protect the Eucharist from people like St. Tarsius in yeah. the early church uh, and uh, others even to modern times, uh, she's, I, I don't know her name, but a, a little nine-year-old Chinese girl would mm. um, God, eventually she tried to, after the communists had thrown the Eucharist all over the church, she would go and pick up a host, one a day, Mm -hmm. with with her tongue.
3: tongue. Exactly, Mm -hmm. yeah, bow down.
0: This is back in the 50s. And then she got caught and killed by the communists as a result. So, but you know, she and many others have been martyrs for the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. So this shows the dignity of Mm -hmm. what's at stake here. And, uh, and that's also, uh, as you mentioned earlier, why, um, you know, it's important to prepare, if you, especially if you commit a mortal sin, you, you have to go to confession. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not something that's optional. Receiving the Eucharist
3: unworthily is itself a grave sin. Right. It's not good for the person who is receiving it. You know, yeah. that's that's the big thing is that it's... And it's damaging to the soul of the person who is not properly receiving.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking while you're talking too the the miracle in Buenos Aires the, that was investigated it was a consecrated host that was found in a candlestick at the back of the of the sanctuary and um, what messed up the scientific investigation of it was that so many people touched it um, that there are, there's the question of oils and, and other DNA mm-hmm. from fingers on there. It, it messed up even the scientific investigation because it wasn't treated hmm. with reverence.
0: And what was the miracle itself in Buenos Aires? What miraculous event was claimed?
2: There, there were four, but the latest one was the only one that was investigated in 1996. A woman found an abandoned consecrated host in a candlestick and it had been there for so long it was dirty. And the priest couldn't consume it because it was too dirty. And so he he followed the norms and put it in water to let it dissolve. And when he went back um, a week later, it hadn't dissolved, but it looked like it had exploded in the tabernacle and there was blood, um, red stuff growing. And there was heart tissue that looked like it was growing and they preserved that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the the question of who touched it and and what was the history of that mm-hmm. sample interfered, in my opinion, it, it totally, that's one of the biggest reasons the scientific evidence is so inconclusive because you don't know where, you don't know what's causing the results that were given even for the type AB blood
3: testing. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful question to ask. Do we treat scientific specimen yeah, exactly. or the God of the Eucharist with more reverence?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's yep. in, uh, a very important uh, element. and uh, But that also brings up this other question, who had taken a host, perhaps in their hand and instead of consuming the body of Christ, just left it back at some candle mm-hmm. or dropped it and somebody else put it by the yeah. candle or something? I What happened there? And you know, and that we, we hear of some people who have tried to TAKE HOSTS IN THEIR HAND AND LEAVE CHURCH BECAUSE THEY PLAN TO DO SOMETHING WICKED Mm -hmm. WITH THE HOST. WE HEAR THREATS OF THAT GOING ON RIGHT NOW. Mm -hmm. Um, YOU KNOW, THAT PEOPLE WANT TO DESECRATE THE HOST BECAUSE OF WHAT THEY PERCEIVE AS THE um, UPCOMING DECISION BY THE SUPREME Mm -hmm. COURT ON ABORTION. In in their desire to continue aborting babies, they also want to desecrate the Eucharist. An interesting (laughs) connection in
3: their own mind. Yes, the only, right, the six degrees of separation, there's there's one one degree of separation, right, Satan, behind the two of them.
0: Yes. And, and, And that's also what is behind our concern that people who have abortions, do abortions and promote abortions, not receive the Eucharist until they repent. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's also not right. Uh, because of who Christ is and what you're receiving, that's yeah. that's one of the important parts of what your book is yeah. pointing out.
3: Yeah, and I think it's a real travesty that so many Catholics don't believe that. You know, that's something that hits me so hard. The you know, 70% of, of mass going Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Christ. And that's why I think it's so important to to get okay. this information out there to, mm-hmm. that, you know, people n- need to be reading this content. They need the book <coughs> to, to yes. really not only uh, know it themselves, but to know it so well that they can pass it to other people mm-hmm. and teach it to other people as well.
0: Well, you youngsters don't remember the old days, <laughs> but I do. Yay because you know when i was growing up we it was transubstantiation was explained to us in a way that we could grasp mm-hmm. it wasn't that hard but in 68 and for the next few years the shift towards the eucharist as a celebratory meal mm-hmm. this is the community getting together well THAT'S A TRUE ELEMENT, Mm -hmm. BUT IT IS A SACRIFICIAL MEAL, LIKE THE PASSOVER. AND THAT'S THE SACRIFICIAL SIDE WAS HUSHED. AND THE SIDE OF THE COMMUNAL MEAL. AND THEN WE DID A NUMBER OF THINGS. Back in those days, before you were born, uh, you too. Uh, I think <laughs> I'm youngsters. closer to you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But you, you, you saw people taking um, the first crucifixes were taken out. Mm, mm-hmm. And it wasn't long after that that the blessed sacrament, the tabernacles were removed. And liturgists were saying that the presence of the Blessed Sacrament was a distraction during Mass. You heard that? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, if Jesus is a (laughs) distraction, exactly who is the main attraction here? Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't Jesus apparently in your mind. Mm So these things went on. And... In that process, the meaning of the is sacrifice, the real presence was neglected, forgotten, and even got to points where I was told not to celebrate Mass anymore at a particular church because I had recited the creed.
3: Oh, my goodness.
0: And the Gloria. <laughs> I did both. And that was forbidden. Okay. I mean we th- this was a neglect that turned into a rejection.
1: Ooh.
0: That's why your book is important. Mm-hmm. So you all of you don't buy the neglect. Okay. Get this book. Behold it is I. Scripture, tradition and science on the real presence by Dr. Stacy Tsankos and Father George Eliot. You can get it at EWTNRC.com. OUR RELIGIOUS CATALOG, WHERE IT'S ITEM 2892. THANK YOU BOTH. AND FATHER, WOULD YOU JOIN ME IN BLESSING OUR AUDIENCE? OF COURSE. MAY ALMIGHTY GOD BLESS YOU AND KEEP YOU AND CAUSE HIS FACE TO SHINE UPON YOU, THE FATHER, THE SON, AND THE HOLY SPIRIT. AMEN. And we can bring you these guests, Dr. Tosankos and Father Elliott, and all the other guests and all the other programs because the show is brought to you by you. The whole network is. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay our bills too. Thank you. God bless.